This is our third and last week looking back at uh, some early Christian documents that, again, I'll say they're not Scripture, but they've been highly respected by Christians for hundreds, thousands of years. Uh, Documents that tried to interpret, as we'll see especially today, how the principles of God's Word were supposed to be lived out in their particular culture very early on, before as much of the uh, structure that we see today in Christianity. And what I'd like to do today is we're going to be looking at a book called The Epistle to Diognetus. It's a bit of a misnomer. It's not an epistle like you think of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. This is actually a book to an unbeliever. It's the only one of the three that we'll look at. Remember, Didache was very clearly to the church, particularly to new Christians, new converts who were looking to be baptized and become full-fledged members of the church. Then the second document, First Clement, was again to a church, from one church to another, trying to help them resolve their strife, how to fix the problem that they had removed leadership and were trying to, to put that church back together. And Clement was attempting to assist with that. But the epistle to Diognetus falls in the category of Christian apology. Christian apology. Now, if you think apology as we use it today, you think, well, why was that guy making excuses? Why was he apologizing for the Christian faith? Well, that's not really what the Christian apologists did. They lived primarily in the second century. So now we've moved from the first century 40, 50 years after the, the completion of the New Testament, less in some cases, to the mid and late 100s. A good definition of apologetics is a reasoned defense of belief or behavior. A reasoned defense of belief or behavior. And so what we're going to look at is how these early Christians defended themselves, how they defended Christianity, which had gotten a very bad rap after just 100, 200 years of existence. They were not welcome in the Greco-Roman culture of their day. So we're going to look at, let me just describe it. Early Christian apologies defended the faith against the attacks of unbelievers and, and often also contained polemical elements. That's the positive and the negative. Apology defends your faith. A polemic attacks the opposite view. And you'll see both, even in Diognetus, as we'll see. Um, and there were two types, really. There were apologies towards Judaism. A good example of that is uh, Justin Martyr, one of the most famous apologists, his dialogue with Trifo. Trifo was a Jew. And in the middle of the second century, the split between Judaism and Christianity had become even greater. And so Justin Martyr and some of these other apologists would dialogue or they would write their apologies towards Jews, towards Judaism, trying to explain, if, you're, if you've ever heard or interacted with a Jew, one of their major complaints about Christianity is the nature of the Messiah that Christianity presents. Because that's not the nature of the Messiah that they came to expect. They expected a Messiah who would rule over everything and establish a kingdom right away and would lead the, the nation of Israel back to the Renaissance period for them. And that's not what Jesus did in his first time on earth, in his first coming. He came to die 
he came to suffer. And the Jews started disputing with Christians very early on, that's not the Messiah. But what the Christians did, they would look at uh, Isaiah 53, which you read this morning, Psalm 22, and they would say, no, there is example in your scriptures, in the Old Testament, that the Messiah came to die. But another type of apology, which is where Diognetus fits in, is this apology toward the Greco-Roman world. Uh, One of Justin Martyr's pupils wrote address to the Greeks. So you have addresses to Jews trying to reconcile or at least defend Christianity. Then you have to a totally different type of mind, the Roman mind of the first couple centuries after Christ. It's a picture of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor during about 20 years of the latter half of the second century, right when the Christian apologists were at their most active. You see the the noble picture of him with his arm outstretched. You have to remember that many of the Roman emperors considered themselves gods. Veneration of Caesar was part of being a Roman, part of being a good citizen. And as such, the Greco-Romans had accusations against Christianity. Let me go through some of these for you. Christians were superstitious and ignorant. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm rephrasing the different accusations that we see because some uh, fairly well-known Romans wrote entire works in the first couple hundred years devoted to attacking and discrediting Christianity. They said it was superstitious and ignorant, largely because most of the Christians in the churches came from the lower classes. Christians didn't go and recruit the senators. They didn't go and recruit the rich. They went to those who were oppressed. They went to those who were obviously openly sinful. Does that remind you of anyone? The Lord Jesus? That's what they did. And so the Romans said, look at these type of people who that are comprising your group. They're, they're not wise. They're not influential. They're nobodies. The philosophers, Greek and Roman, rejected Christianity as a fantastical human creation. And they actually... Uh, disagree with it on many grounds, but especially Christianity's view that the body would be resurrected one day, and also it's teaching that perfect, immutable God could have lowered himself to take on imperfect flesh. It just did not jive with the philosophy of the day. Uh, Christians were politically dangerous. They said that because Christians worshipped, their allegiance was to the one true God, not to Caesar. And so that was dangerous. Uh, they came from, from Palestine, an area that was known for having lots of strife and rebellion. If you remember, the, the large Jewish rebellion in AD 70 kind of left a bad taste in Romans' minds for Jews and anyone associated with Jews. They were politically dangerous because they didn't get involved in the political process as much as other Jews, or as much as other Romans, I should say, as other citizens. They accused Christians of being atheists. You say, well, that's strange. Well, when you have a whole pantheon of hundreds of gods, and then you have a small minority saying, there's only one God, those others aren't gods, they're just imaginations, then you could see how perhaps the Romans would have attacked them as atheists. They called Christians antisocial. The Christians understandably preferred private, closed communities. You had to join, you had to meet the requirements to enter a church. They didn't get involved in the, in the uh, emperor worship 
Because so much of even being a soldier back then, or, or much less being a politician, meant being involved in the Roman cult. And to be honest, most of the Romans of that day, they weren't deeply religious people. They weren't even deeply superstitious. But it was part of their identity to give a sacrifice. Part of their identity to venerate Caesar. And Christians couldn't go along with that. The last accusation, they were accused of other sensational crimes like ritual murder, cannibalism, incest, and magic. It was very hard to change the perception of unsafe people who had only had maybe no contact or very little contact with this new faith. It was hard to rid them of those prejudices, really. I think a lot of those probably came from uh, misunderstanding the ordinances. Your Lord, your Lord said to drink his blood and eat his flesh? You people all go out and bathe together in the river? Now there's something immoral. There's something strange going on there. They didn't understand that. There's a picture of Justin Martyr. And this was the Christian apologist defense. They attacked, but they also defended themselves. They said, in some ways, Christianity shared a heritage with Judaism, which Romans, generally, tolerated as an ancient religion. They tolerated Judaism. They appreciated the, uh, the brilliance of several Jewish philosophers and theologians. So Christianity at times would link with Judaism and say, look, we share a heritage with them. We serve the same God that they did. Now we've evolved from that. The Lord has given us new information. He has sent his son. So we're not Jews, but we share the same heritage with them. Also, they said that as good citizens, Christians prayed for their rulers and they didn't cause a stir. Remember, Nero, among others, claimed the, accused the Christians of setting fires and starting rebellions. But there was never any concrete evidence to that. That wasn't what Christians did. And the Christian apologists pointed that out again and again. They attacked the Greco-Roman cults, the ridiculous mythological foundations. In, some, in Diognetus, you even see him talking to this Roman saying, Look, you know this. You know that your gods aren't gods. You put the gods that are gold and silver locked in a, in a safe and the w- ones that are wood you leave out. If they were real gods, then you wouldn't do that because they would have true power. They're only, you just, you're disrespecting your own gods. Greek philosophy contains some faint echoes of Christian teaching. And I have to be careful here. And I think the apologists at times went too far. Diognetus 6 has some of this argument. They would say that things like the core truth of the Lagos were found in Greek philosophers. And it was. That idea of a central truth that everything else revolves around. And you see John in his gospel appropriating that term for Christ. For the very nature of the, third, of the second person of the Trinity. They would also point to God as the eternal father of all. That's a very Greek concept. Paul at times would say, even your own philosophers, your own poets, and he would quote occasionally pagan philosophers, pagan poets, who maybe were wrong in 95% of what they wrote, but had a few good threads, a few truths there. I do think at times they went too far and gave more credit to the philosophers than they needed to. And then finally, they 
they just denied those absurd accusations. They pointed out that in the Roman judicial system, Christians had not been convicted with evidence on those different ridiculous accusations like stirring up heresy or incest or cannibalism. So what we're going to do today, I should say Acts 4.24 was the most common verse that the apologists used. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They loved to point to that verse that established not only all humanity has a common bond, we're created people, we're all the same. We're not better than you, Roman, neither are you better than us. We're all people made in God's image. But also that God is the only true creator and king who has the right to reign. And I really think that entire chapter, as Peter in Acts 4 gives a defense, is an example of an early type of apology. The end of Peter's sermon says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So my encouragement to you today is to use this to equip yourself to defend the faith. Whoa, Zach, I'm not an apologist. I'm not a theologian. When people ask me questions, I just, you know, give them Pastor Ken's email address because I don't know. Well, I would say, first of all, that proves that we all need to know God's word better. We need to know our theology better so that we can give an answer. But you don't have to be a master theologian. As we'll see, Diognetus has a lot of great theology, but he also has some good reason. He has some good observation skills. He points out things in the Greco-Roman worldview that don't make sense. And he points out things that could only make sense with the Christian worldview. And so the epistle to Diognetus we'll look at today, defending the faith. As I've done before, we'll look at the different details so that you can have an idea, hopefully a year from now, if you happen to stumble across the epistle to Diognetus or someone mentions it, you'll know a little bit of what they're saying. Who was the writer? Unknown. There's absolutely no way to, to uh, speculate here who the writer was. We just don't know. It wasn't his intention. When was it written? As I said, the apologists flourished in the second century, particularly the second half of the second century. Uh, you do see some older church fathers like Origen, and Augustine do a little apologetic work in the later centuries, but it was primarily based in the second. And they believe that it was probably the second half. Who was it written to? Well, obviously Diognetus. And the very first verse says, most excellent Diognetus. It talks about the, the questions that you have had. I'm ready to answer them. And we think that he was a government official if you look at the first chapter, the first verse of Luke, it says it was written to most excellent Theophilus. Now, there's not much similarity between the Gospel of Luke and the Epistle to Diognetus, but they both begin a certain way, respectfully addressing someone who was high up and said, I want to reach out to you. I want to present the faith to you. I want to make a reasoned, careful 
presentation of Christianity to you, Diognetus, because you have some questions. Why was it written? To defend the Christian faith as a noble, reasonable system which worshipped the one and only true God. It's interesting that the epistle to Diognetus has a very interesting history. It was not quoted by any of the, of the ancient or medieval Christian writers. Unlike the, the first couple books that we looked at, the Didache, First Clement, uh, quotations from those works are all over early church history. They were highly regarded. But the epistle to Diognetus seems to have been almost lost to the ages. And I say that because there has only ever been found one manuscript which contained this entire letter. One. There are thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. Not entire, but pieces. There's only one manuscript, was, to the epistle to Diognetus. It dates back to the 13th or 14th century. So a thousand years or more after it was originally written. And a Roman, uh, uh, a Catholic cleric in the 1400s was at a fish market. And he happened to see an ancient, it wasn't that ancient at that point, but a document with Greek writing on it. It was about to be used as wrapping for the fish. And he bought it from the fish vendor, eventually ended up in the library in Strasbourg. And that is the only copy of the Epistle to Diognetus that we have. If he had not pulled that out of the fish market, we would not even know this book existed. And to be honest, we don't have a copy of that manuscript today. During the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, that library burned and the manuscript vanished. But scholars in the 1800s had made several copies of that manuscript. So the text isn't great. Unlike with God's Word where there are multiple, multiple witnesses to the text, and we can say that we absolutely know we have God's Word. I don't know if we have all of Diognetus. The last couple of chapters, as you'll see here in the structure, are a separate homily that was added on. So I'm not even going to cover those. We're only going to cover chapters 1 through 10 briefly. The prologue, where he introduces himself to Diognetus, states his intention of answering his questions. Chapters 2 through 4 talk about the futility of paganism and Judaism. And then chapters 5 through 6, the character and religion of Christians you have a, uh, a handout. Hopefully every couple has one handout. I forgot to mention it at the very beginning. But uh, we will be reading the selection from Diognetus, the third page in that. We'll read, be reading that in its entirety in just a bit. And that's where that's from, the character and religion of Christians. Chapter 7 through 10, give the gospel, the character and purpose of God. Before that separate homily, which honestly, is not quite up to the same quality of the rest of the book. It's clear that 1 through 10 were written by the same author with a good head on his shoulders and a heart for God, and 11 through 12 are decent, but they're not quite the same. So let me ask, as I've asked every week, why is the epistle to Diognetus valuable? Why should you care? Why should you stay awake? Why should you bother to read this to your kids? Why should you not just forget that these works, the Didache, First Clement, epistle to Diognetus, and others even existed. The world almost forgot that the Diognetus ever existed. One scholar says, it was the apologists who first attempted to interpret 
the beliefs and practices of the Christian community in relation to the intellectual climate of the Roman Empire. This interpretive work required a kind of engagement with philosophy and culture that continues to this day. Christians in every age need to be able to defend their faith. And the epistle to Diognetus is a masterful, masterful work. You will not hear me saying there are many flaws in this book. Uh, J.B. Lightfoot, uh, an old theologian from the 19th century, said this was the most noble work out of all the early Christian writings. Another man, another scholar said that this deserved, this author, unknown as he is, deserves to be listed with the unknown authors of Hebrews and Job as great Christian men. We don't know their identity, but they contributed to our faith mightily. This is a very valuable book, and it deserves your attention this morning. As I've done before, we'll look at several major themes throughout the book. The first is the flaws in the other system. As the writer goes on the offensive against paganism and Judaism, then we'll talk about the characteristics of Christians living in that time period, what they acted like, how they treated each other, their values. And then we'll see the terrific presentation of the gospel, not above what you or I could do, but very well done. So first of all, we'll look at these flaws in paganism and Judaism that the writer points out, sizing up the competition. So, as the letter goes on the attack, it asks, first of all, some questions. It challenges Diognetus and his ostensibly pagan worldview. It says, regarding idols, are not all these made of perishable matter? Are they not all deaf and blind, without souls, without feelings, without movement? These are the things you call gods. You serve them. You worship them. And in the end, you become like them. He attacks the superstitious mythological beliefs of the Greco-Roman world. He says, your gods are nothing. They're not alive. If you keep following them, you're going to be dead just like them, without movement, without feelings, without souls. It's, rem- it's reminiscent of how Isaiah attacked the Israelites when they were flirting with idolatry. In Isaiah 44, you have gods, you go and carve your god out from wood and then put it <clears throat> in a treasured spot in your house and say, oh, this God brought me good fortune this year. Oh, I need to give more sacrifices. You're the one who made it in the first place. Our God is a God who's not made by hands. He's the one who made everything. And I keep calling him Diognetus. The author to Diognetus very clearly points out that is an incorrect assumption and a flaw in your worldview. But he also goes on to... uh, talk about some of the philosophical ideas. I mentioned they sometimes would point out rapport between Greek philosophy and Christianity, where some points of agreement, but they weren't above attacking it too. Do you accept the empty and nonsensical statements of those pretentious philosophers that God was fire and others water and still others some other one of the elements created by God? God is the one who made these things. And you're saying that somehow in 
earth, wind, fire, water, the, the four treasured elements of your worldview, that those are God, they're merely the elements that God made in his world. So he went on the attack against this pagan worldview. But he also went on to attack Judaism and to delineate between Christians and Jews. Remember, he's writing to a pagan who maybe will lump, or is lumping it all together. He's saying, no, we have some similarities with Judaism, but we're not the same. Jews rightly claim to worship the one God of the universe, but they approach their sacrificial system thinking that they are offering these things to God as if he were in need of them. The Jews were still sacrificing 150, 200 years after Christ had paid the ultimate sacrifice. And the author recognizes the futility of that. You're, you're giving offerings to God like he needs them, like he can't survive unless you come and give him your tithes and offerings and sacrifices. Jewish customs like circumcision, abstaining from certain foods, fasting and festivals are all dismissed as superstition and hypocrisy. Those are the author's words. He's not afraid to take some swings at Judaism. Christians are right, ultimately, he says, to keep their distance from the common silliness and deception and fussiness and pride of the Jews. Fussiness and pride. If you remember, the early church was entirely Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. This is not an anti-Jew rant per se. What it is as Christianity developed and Jews in droves left the church and those early churches by the time we get to the second century are almost entirely Gentile. Those churches have begun to realize, yeah, Paul said it was okay for you to continue with your, your customs, your ethnic traditions back in the first few years. But now, why? Why would you keep going to that? Why would you celebrate feast days? Why would you conduct these circumstances, these traditions, as if they were getting you closer to God? They don't. It's the silliness and deception and fussiness and pride. Friends, I really want to make a point here. Dr. Mark Snowberger taught the class on apologetics at the seminary. It's one of the best classes I took there. And the point he made was, over and over again, you don't realize, most Christians don't realize that we can go on the attack. You don't have to just juggle the accusations that an, unchristian, an unbeliever throws at you like someone trying to keep a bunch of precious vases in the air. Oh, okay, you throw me another accusation. Okay, I'll, I'll try to figure that out. I'll go study it out. There is a, a room, there is a place to defend, to study. But there is a place to attack their worldview. To let them know your view does not make sense. Apart from a belief in God and a trust in the Bible as the only revelation, the only special perfect revelation that we have of God, you do not have truth. So you can attack them on things like, why does every culture, every human culture, recognize that certain things are wrong? Now, there's variances, to be sure. But why do, is stealing wrong? Why do they punish stealing? 
Why do they punish other crimes? Why are certain things unacceptable no matter where you go in the world? Why do we even have any confidence that the, earth, the sun will come up tomorrow? If everything is based on chance and there's no God who is ensuring that humanity will survive another day, then how can you guarantee anything? Why does the universe run like a clock? What keeps humanity, think about this, challenge your unbeliever friend with this, what keeps us from being merely more than animals? What makes us special? If we just evolved, if we're just a higher order, then what makes us higher? Do we have a soul? Do we have, are we made in God's image? Do we have a morality that's higher than them? Then why? Why isn't it okay for people to go and slaughter other weaker people like ants do? Ants will go, one colony of ants will go and take on another colony of ants. Why are we better than them? Force them to defend their worldview. I'm not saying you have to be rude. I'm not saying you have to be harsh. But we are right. Not because we're better than them, but because we serve the true and living God. And the author in the epistle to Diognetus, if he were standing here today, would say the same thing. Go after falsehood. Stand for the truth of God's word. You can go ahead and turn to the third page of your handout. We're going to read that in its entirety. I have a different version. That's from uh, Dr. Holmes' previous version. And I will say, I mentioned this book before. I held it up the first week. These are available. They're not at the desk right now. But if you're interested in getting one of them, uh, it is over 300 pages, over 15, I think more than 15, but quite a few notable Christian works in there, including some that I just didn't even get a chance to get to, like the writings of Polycarp and Ignatius, which are extremely valuable as well. I would encourage you, go over to the ladies at the help desk and let them know that you would like to get a copy of this. It's $20 shipped. Pastor Ken is going to put in an order this week to Amazon, and several of you have mentioned that you would like this. This is a very good resource to have. The writing is very modern in English, There's an introduction before each work that helps explain it a little bit, the background of it. And all three works that we covered in the last three weeks are found here. So I'll be reading from that. Let's read what what the Epistle to Diognetus says about the distinctiveness of Christians. For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. This teaching of theirs has not been discovered by the thought and reflection of ingenious people, nor do they promote any human doctrine, as some do. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland. Every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. Another anti-abortion statement. They share their food, 
but not their wives. My favorite line in the whole thing. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private laws, they, lives, they transcend the laws. They don't just follow the letter of the law. They follow the Spirit. They love everyone, and by everyone, they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners. By the Greeks, they are persecuted. Yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. Beautiful passage. It's become very well known in the last couple hundred years. Christians are ordinary people with extraordinary faith. And I think I can sum up a couple of the major themes from that section we just read. They have a dual citizenship, which I'm sure you saw, and a patience through suffering. I think we find both those themes in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Dual citizenship, having a good civic testimony to all those around you in your community, saved and unsaved, but understanding that we are children of heaven. And then the patience through suffering, Peter continues, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you, as an, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Christians didn't retaliate. They loved everyone, but they were hated by everyone. That is the mark of Christians. In their day, and in ours. We are marked by love and by patience. We are citizens here, yes, and we carry out, our, carry out our responsibilities honorably and faithfully, but we understand always that this is not our home. That is the character of Christians as the epistle to Diognetus presents it, and as I would argue, the New Testament does as well. So we've seen the attacks against the opposing worldviews a presentation of Christians and their character, what they were like, and then finally, the gospel. The author gives a tremendous portrayal of the gospel. God's purpose accomplished. Remember the verse says, in the fullness of times, because that was one of the questions that Diognetus had. Why did Christianity just come on the market now? Why did we not hear about it before? And the answer is, as the author goes on to explain, this was when God chose to reveal himself through his son. This was his time. God revealed himself through Christ. 8.1 and 7.4 ask, well, what person had any knowledge at all of what God was before he came? He answers it. Well, God sent him in gentleness 
and meekness. As a king might send his son who is a king. He sent him as God. He sent him as human to humans. It's a very, very high Christology in the apostle to Diognetus. The Lord Jesus is exalted and his work and his person receive proper, high respect. God revealed himself through Christ. That was the way. If, If a Roman was saying, how can we know God? All the gods that I know are this pantheon of superstitious figures that I don't really think exist. But I know God is out there. Only the fool says there is no God. How can I know him? And the author of the epistle to Diognetus says, through Christ. That's how you can know God. God revealed himself through Christ, and Christ paid the penalty for sins and provided redemption. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? The author's atonement is spot on. Christ covered my sins. He covered your sins. And Diognetus, if you will accept this, he can cover your sins as well. Christ paid the penalty for sins and provided redemption. Redemption is accessed by faith in Christ. He revealed himself through faith, which is the only means by which one is permitted to see God. And then in chapter 10, then after Diognetus, if you accept this, if you accept the faith and knowledge of God, then you will condemn the deceit and error of the world when you realize what is the true life in heaven. Do not be surprised that a person can become an imitator of God. One can, if God is is willing. The entirety of chapter 10 is a plea to Diognetus to accept this truth, to become one of God's. And then the author paints a portrait of him. This is what life will be like. You will see things differently. You will understand why it is that Christians live the way they do, why they're not afraid to die. Then you will condemn the deceit and error of the world when that true life is yours. Friends, the gospel is deep, it is meaningful, it is life-changing, but it is not terribly complicated. You realize that? Those three points are the gospel. God revealed himself through Christ. Christ paid the penalty for sins and provided redemption, and redemption is accessed by faith in Christ. If you can grasp those three truths, then you can not only defend your worldview, but you can present the reasonable but otherworldly gospel truth. You can let others know what you believe in those three points. There's more to it, absolutely. You may be able to go into more depth with different people. Remember, as we see throughout the New Testament, the presentations of the gospel differed according to the circumstances, according to who was listening. But those are the three core points of the gospel. And I'd like to read, as we close, another section from the Epistle to Diognetus that proves the, not only the heart of this author to communicate this truth 
Diognetus, if only you will believe. You know that your religion is vain. You know this is the truth. You can become an imitator of God if God is willing. If God opens your heart, this is available to you. Let me read these as we close. Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Having demonstrated, therefore, in the former time, the powerlessness of our nature to obtain life, and having now revealed the Savior's power to save even the powerless, that's you, Diognetus, you may not realize it, but you're powerless without Christ. He willed that for both these reasons, we should believe in his goodness and regard him as a nurse, father, teacher, counselor, healer, mind, light, honor, glory, strength, and life. And not be anxious about food and clothing. Is that a little mundane? The treasures of Christ, the greatness of what he did. He is our counselor, healer, light, honor, glory, strength. So don't, that's why Christians aren't afraid. That's why we don't worry about food. That's why we don't worry about our clothing. Was that mundane? To in, the, in that great theology, to end with just a simple explanation, that's why Christians don't worry about you know, their everyday life so much. No, it's not. That captures perfectly the attitude of this, this writer. There is grand theology. There is a marvelous gospel that we share. But there is a practical way that we live in front of each other, in front of outsiders. Christians are people who have the gospel and are being changed by that. And as a result, live, think, act differently. They may look the same. They may live in the same neighborhood as unbelievers. But there is something different about them not because they're grand or perfect or wonderful on their own, but because they have believed in the only Christ revealed, who reveals the Father. I hope that these last three weeks have been helpful for you. Again, $20 for something that is very rich. I hope that some of you will take advantage of that. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we do need this dearly. We need to be to sharpen our tools. We need to be ready and able to defend our Lord, to defend your word, to defend the gospel. But Lord, give us kindness and patience in the way that we do that. Help us to not offend others because of our manners, but because of the truth that, of, for which we stand. And I ask for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room that you would equip us, Lord, and, and enliven us for this important task when we interact with outsiders. And I ask for your blessing on this week as we thank you for every good thing you have done and that thankfulness rises to a crescendo this week. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.